Our scripture this morning comes from 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to be going also into chapter 5. I would invite you to open one of your pew Bibles that are in front of you. Just grab one of those, or if you have your Bible, bring um, open that up as well, or follow along on the screen. Dear friends, do not believe in every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. 
In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. This is the victory that has over even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater, because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts his testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. May God add his blessings to the reading of this word. Let us pray for our pastor. Lord, as in all of your word, there is so much weight to everything that is said and everything that we are to learn. We pray that as Pastor Mike comes forward this morning that he will unpack this message, that he will help us to better understand and to take those things into our hearts that we need to know and depend on. And so, Lord, we just pray for this time and pray for our pastor as he preaches your word that you have given him to share this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, people. So glad to see you this morning. Um, I want to share with you uh, what's going on. We're going to start with the purple sheets in your bulletin and end with the purple sheet in your bulletin. So grab that purple sheet, and I'm going to have them put the first picture up of the prayer square. Um, You know, in 2010, on the last day of 2010, we bought a piece of property out in Northeast Marion, and that prayer square has been out there uh, for us to go pray at and deliberate at and to discern at. Uh, on REC Drive. This week, that prayer square was removed because we believe in prayer, not because we do not. It's because the builders need access through there to begin building our building, which, thanks to your prayer, your hard work, and extreme generosity, should begin in the next few, get this, days. Days. Yeah. So... We're very excited. Stuff, stuff would have appeared out there Friday, but it's apparently been moist. So when it gets less moist and our farmer can bale that hay that he cut, then the building will begin. Now that's all very exciting, and of course we rock and cheer, but I believe in the power of prayer. It says the prayers of the righteous are powerful and effective, and I believe that you are the righteous of God and you want to pray more. So the purple sheet comes to this. We should cover that property and what is to come there with the prayer. We should be asking God to bestow his Holy Spirit on it every day. Now, there's no prayer square anymore, but um, as I learned at a workshop a long time ago, people have cars. So you can take your car out there, and you can park on the street. You can walk out on the property, not where the big yellow equipment is and stuff like that, but you can pray. And I'd re- pray, and I would really like for, for, for many, many of us to take and fill that purple card out today drop it in the offering prayer and say, I'll pray one of these days. There are all seven of them listed, so you don't have a hard choice. Um, 
but to really from now until the end of June pray. There will be a more, um, a cleaner prayer uh, vigil after that, but right now I think let's just go for volume. So don't hesitate. Sign up. Commit. Commit to five or six days between now and the end of June to praying, and we'll send you some info if you give us info uh, from you. Amen? One of my uh, preaching classes way back in seminary, I had a friend named Houston Green, and Houston was an egghead preacher. And he was preaching at a little place called Cozad, Nebraska, which I think is a fine place. They make Monroe muffler or shock absorbers and all that kind of stuff there. But I remember him telling uh, our Dr. Sleeth, he says, my, my, my congregation, my congregation doesn't understand my sermons. He says, I prepare so well, and, and when I preach, I, I go deep. I go so deep, they don't understand it. And Dr. Sleeth just looked at him and said, you're going deep? He says, I'm going so deep, they don't understand me. He says, come up a little bit. <clears throat> come up a little bit. The Word of God is for us to be understanding. And what Vicki read today in that very long passage is what's known as a spiral passage, which means that the gospel writer says what he means to say and then interprets again, interprets again, and then tells us what he said, which is why we read it all <clears throat> at one place. So I warn you about that to tell you this. We're going to get a little thick today. I hope not to get too deep, but we're going to get a little thick today. Sometimes we're able to just write down the middle of the plate, but we're going to unpack this. Some time ago, I think one of the most slain conversations I've ever had during my time as pastor at Marion Methodist I was out on downtown, actually, at Marion by Moonlight, talking to one of my folks. And I was asking him how his life was going and how things were and what's happening and what was really troubling him and what was bothering him. And he says to me, oh, Pastor Mike, I'm way too embarrassed to tell you what's really going on in our life. That just absolutely slayed me because what it put out, and what it, in, what it accidentally puts out for you, for me, everywhere, is that the church is the facade, that, that we're not here to deal with the real deep issues, you know, and sometimes when we hear a passage that says, love, love, I think the word love is in that passage, you know, 13 or 14 times, when we hear love, 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 we all of a sudden think Valentine's hearts, and that, you know, we want to, oh, yeah, we love you, but, but, but love is real, you know, the church is not a place for the nice to be nice to the nice. The church is to be a place that's much thicker than that. Church is it's not a social club. It's not a recreational place. It's not, it's not a special interest group. The church that Jesus founded, the church that Jesus established, is to deal with and to speak hope into his people, into our real lives, into our real problems, into our real difficulties, into our real questions and issues. So John... It feels like when he's talking about love that he's talking up here on an ethereal level. But in reality, John is getting gritty with the church. And so today we have to get just a little bit gritty. The church must be the place where a person can find hard questioning and reasoned deliberation about crucial matters of the Christian faith and practice. Now look how thick that is. That's my shortened version of all that I wanted the first point to be. The church must be the place where a person can find hard questioning. Hard questioning. That's not nice to the nice to the nice. And reason deliberation. That's not just saying everything's going to be okay. About crucial matters of the Christian life, faith and practice. Look, we have, Christian, we have questions about life. 
We have real questions about our Christianity. How do, we, how do we go about testing them? How do we find the answers we look at and we're looking for to, to, to what we're seeking? In the scripture that Vicki read just a few moments ago, it says, test the spirits. What, for goodness sake, does that mean? Those of you from the hills of Tennessee, it doesn't mean what you think. I figured you'd come along with me. All right. When, when it says, test the spirits, it means when someone, whether it's here or on television or some other place, when someone claims to be speaking for God, you put them to the test. You need to be discerning. The test is to compare what you're hearing when, when a person is speaking with what is taught clearly, not what the hidden messages of Scripture, but what's taught clearly by the Bible. Is what you're hearing aligning with the Scripture's message? Is it one and the same thing? We have questions about Christianity. So how do we go about testing them? Well, let me give you a little United Methodist primer, and this will be the longest introduction to a sermon Pastor Mike's ever given. Hold on. It's almost half the sermon, just my intro. There are four things, those of you that have had confirmation from me or are having confirmation, or if you've ever looked at the Book of Discipline in the United Methodist Church, <clears throat> know that in 1968, a guy named Albert Outler wrote what's called the Westland Quadrilateral. Ever heard of it, Westland Quadrilateral? All right, yay, we've got some, yay. Now, the quadrilateral is, it, it's a trick because quadrilateral sounds like all four things are equal, but they're not. It says the quadrilateral starts by saying, Scripture is the primary resource for our faith and life, okay? The other three hang from that. The second of the quadrilateral pieces is United Methodists test their faith. They test the spirits of the world by tradition. Tradition. I'm not talking Teviev. Tradition. You know that. I'm talking tradition. See, faith didn't start with us. There's not a single person in here, even in this church, that began this church. Not one of you is 175. Some of you act like you are, but you are not. Not one of us started this church, and we certainly didn't start the Christian church, which is an easy way of saying, faith did not start with me. So you say, what is the story of the church? When you look at tradition, you say, what is the story of the church? And by church, we mean, what do we learn from the cloud of witnesses that stood outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago up through today? What, what is the testimony of the church? Traditions can be beautiful, and they can also be mixed up. So that's why you have to look at a clean tradition. Traditions can be mixed up by, 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 by local customs, by sinfulness, by the things that we like. I'll tell you an easy story on this. I, I remember 20-some years ago when I first, it was the first summer I had become the pastor at, at uh, Asbury Church in Webster City, which was a county seat town, and they had a rich history. But part of their history was a little bit of a mess before Pastor Mike showed up. On my second day, I was their longest tenured employee. <laughs> Unicorns and rainbows, it was not. But we did our best through our first summers. We hired a new staff and got everybody aligned with things. But I remember, you know, during the, church, during the summer, we started having things that, you know, I was a church that probably should have had 200 kids in Bible school. We had like 35 kids in Bible school. But we had some baptisms come up, and I baptized several babies during the during the summer, and then I remember one Sunday in October, we introduced a different song to them, not the one we sing here, but a beautiful one, and, and I baptized this baby, and this mother was just crying, the tears were running down her 
cheeks. I thought, well, what a beautiful moment. And I gave her child back, and they walked down the steps, and they went and sat, and she cried through the whole church service. And I said, well, how moving am I? <laughs> Can't get full of yourself. Because after church, she walked right up the steps and says, you are ruining baptism. I'm like, wait, I held the baby, just like Matthew 28, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. No, no, I did it right. What do you mean I'm ruining baptism? She says, we have always at this church, always at this church, given a white rose to a child when they're baptized. And you didn't give my child. And you haven't given any children we baptized this summer a white rose said myself, I said, well, that explains the 200 silk roses underneath the counter in my office. <laughs> but that was a local tradition and custom. They had that local tradition and custom because an elderly school teacher named Nina Bishop made 200 silk roses one day, and they said, where should we use them all? Let's give them to the kids at baptism. But that's not really the tradition of the church because we don't do that here. We don't do it. I didn't ruin it here, I don't think. Maybe. Nobody's told me yet. It's only been 14 years. But, but, but you see, traditions sometimes get messed up by our hearts, by what we, we feel good about. And our hearts are not meant to follow. Our hearts are meant to be led by God. So, so we trust things. We look at traditions and we take the spirit of revelation and, and we test it against Scripture. How has the truth been revealed in the church? Secondly, in, in this United Methodist quadrilateral, on our United Methodist primer, how do we test the spirits? We look at experience. Now, now this gets very personal, it gets very corporate. What is your personal experience? This is one of the most important questions. What is your personal experience of God's forgiving power and empowering love in your life? Did you get that God's love is about forgiveness and empowerment? Do you get that God's love has completely <clears throat> come to forgive you of all your sins, to restore your life and empower you? For the new creation. Is, is, is that your experience? That, because when we, when we understand that, that authenticates in our lives the truths revealed in scriptures. Because in scriptures we see people constantly receiving forgiveness and being empowered for new life. And, and then we can claim them as our own. And that new life means that we're reborn. We're reborn in an understanding of God, and that allows us to make sensitive moral judgments. Now, when I mean sensitive moral judgments, that means that Christians are empowered to do hard things. That doesn't mean we're hard people. But I know enough about Scripture, as do you, to know that the way that is wide leads to ruin. But the way that is narrow and less traveled leads to triumph. And our experience must be, are we being made able by God to do hard things when much of the climate in which we live stands opposed? Now, in addition to our personal experience, there is this corporate experience that we also need to test the spirits again against. In attempting to understand the biblical message, and by biblical message I mean all of the Old Testament and New Testament, we recognize that there is one family of humanity and that all people are offered God's gift of liberating love in Jesus Christ. All people are offered God's gift of liberating love in Jesus Christ. And when it says we're talking about one family in God, that means that we're talking about all economic statuses, all races, all cultures, all languages, and all world religions, now hear, hear what I'm saying, not what you think I might be saying. 
God's gift of Christ's liberating love comes to the whole human family, no matter where they're sitting right now. But salvation and new life, the experience of the scripture says, it's through Christ and Christ alone. And so then we look at the various facets of, of the human experience and we have troubles with that because we, this is about hard things. We look at pe- pieces of the human experience like hunger and hatred and terror and racist, racism and all these kind of things and, and that tests my theological understanding because many of God's people that I just listed that are part of the human family are aching today. They're broken today. They're, they're hurting today. So our experience leans on and is shaped by scripture that proclaims, get this, proclaims a better future for all lovers of God. That may not be immediate, trust me, and you know it because you've been through some of it. But this experience of scripture is that it proclaims a better future for all the lovers of God. <clears throat> and third, in our United Methodist primer, the Lutherans would say it this way. You can't check your brain at the door. You got to bring human reason into this. So, so our wrestling quadrilateral, if you haven't kept up, is scripture, tradition, experience, reason. See, God's revelation and our experience of God's grace constantly surpass, constantly surpass the limits of human language and sometimes human reason. I had a student this week, and some of you might have been there for it, that told us in confirmation as she gave her personal testimony of Jesus Christ. She gave her personal testimony of Jesus Christ this week. In the middle of which she told a story of when she was grieving, greatly grieving because of a loss of her family, crying herself to sleep, grieving deeply. And she said in her dream, she didn't see anything, she didn't actually hear a voice, but she felt God comfort her heart and allow her the information to know that Grandpa was okay in heaven. And she woke up greatly comforted and relieved. Now that's supernatural. You cannot record that. That's a, an experience that only she can have. But she knows she had it. She, she can't, you can't argue that. I, I went to an altar once with, <clears throat> that looked just like this one. A woman named Deb came with her husband and said, I've been having persistent back pain. I'm in so much pain. I cannot stand up at the factory. I can't do anything. She says, will you, didn't go to my church, she said, I believe in prayer though, will you put your hands on me and pray? And I put my hands right on the spot of her back where she asked me to put it, and her husband put her hand, his hand on her shoulders, and we prayed, and I'll tell you what, my hands got so hot, so hot, I thought they were going to blister. And guess what? Next day, Deb got out of bed, she's never had a back problem since, been 20-some years. That had nothing to do with me, it had to do with the faith of this one. That's a supernatural thing that's hard to explain. But yet, we can't check our brains at the door. And you say, why does that make sense to us? Why, why does, wh- how do we test by reason all things that are Christian? How do we test the supernatural? How do we test the scriptures against it? But we do have to test scripture and tradition and experience and all the actions of human beings and the church <clears throat> to, to seek to, to grasp, <clears throat> pardon me, in view of God's word, the reality mar- marked by God's intervention in Jesus Christ. And in our time, not so much in previous generations, some, but in our time more than others, a lot of people will tell you that really have a scientific leaning, they'll say that Christianity is not reasonable because it's based on mythology. Okay? 
That is because scientists rightly believe that you should have evidence that makes sense before you make a conclusion. So hear very carefully what I'm going to say next. Faith and science are not mutually exclusive. In fact, faith and science should go hand in hand when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you understand the fact that the first people that we would call Christians did not believe that Jesus rose from the dead? They did not believe that he rose from the dead. Do you know why they did not believe that he rose from the dead? Because they did not have to. They saw it. You do not have to believe in what you can see. I know that Ron's there. I can see him. I don't have to believe that he's here. I can see Ron sitting right there. The first Christians did not believe that Christ rose from the dead because they saw it. And all they did, the 500 of them that saw that, witnessed it. That is evidence, my friend. You know, in the scriptures it tells us, and in accord it tells you, if you have two witnesses, that pretty much makes something righteous. When you have 500, what's that make? We have to believe, which is why Jesus said to Thomas, blessed are those who do not see, but yet believe. He's talking to us. They didn't have to believe, they could see. So, so evidence is there, so reasonably, the Christian faith is reasonable because we don't believe in mythology. As a matter of fact, all the history and archaeology around that time proves the, the gospel story. But the witnesses believe. Now, that's a pretty good introduction, wasn't it? Now let's get to the sermon. It won't be any longer in the introduction. Three things arise as we consider crucial matters of the Christian faith and practice. First, the church confesses that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Don't miss that. First, the church confesses that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. This simple statement slices into every one of our deepest issues that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. If we could realize our full human potential by organizing political groups, if we could realize our full human potential by, by better schools or by better thoughts or even just sheerly affirming ourselves, what in the heck need would we ever have for a Savior? But we cannot, so therefore we confess the authentic Christ who came in the flesh as Jesus and gave his life for us all. This is central to the Christian belief. It cannot be missed. It cannot be overlooked. It must be repeated all the time, which is why the gospel, the, the writer of John, uh, 1 John, repeats it three times. Second, the contrast between Christ and culture must be examined. We can never miss that. Christ doesn't fit into the culture, and by the way, he never did. He, he never fit into his culture. His religious contemporaries had nothing to do with him. They didn't want anything to do with him. But his contemporaries in the culture knew that he was authentic. They knew that he loved them. Not in the way the religious people did, because they didn't love them at all. He was frank and real with people. Do you remember how he met, meets this woman as well in Samaria? And he says, bring your husband back. Let's talk to her. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. He says, I know. The one you're living with right now is not your husband. You have had five others. And she knew right then that he was willing to be real with her and that he loved her for who she was, even though she wasn't gonna leave, he wasn't going to leave her the way she was. The same story, the story of Zacchaeus, when Jesus sees Zacchaeus up in the tree, he says, Zacchaeus, come on down here. And he called and confronted Zacchaeus for who he was, and Zacchaeus repented because Jesus dealt with this real life. He didn't just want money like some of the religious leaders of his time. He knew exactly who Zacchaeus was, and therefore Zacchaeus repented and believed because he was confronted with his sin. They loved him for that. They loved him for the fact that he was real to them, authentic 
Christians are loving, frank, and real. That's what Christians are. This is to be our role. This is to be our impact on the culture. And Christians that preach Christ will not win personality contests. Frank and real is not popular. I have stood with one person after another over the years, and they've told me their real issues, and I say, okay, here's what you've got. There's only, you know, Christian counseling. Sorry, I've got a master's degree in this, but Christian counseling is really not that hard. What's the problem? What do you need to do about it? And will you do it? You know, what does God want you to do about it? Will you do it? So I asked this. More than once, I can remember just really feeling bold one day, and I said, okay, here's what your problem is. Do you agree? Yes. Here's what God wants you to do about it. Yes. Will you do it? Never saw him again. Because when we're confronted with our own sins, it's difficult. But sometimes we, we, have to, we have to understand that we need to help people reconsider their behavior. But, but that will never win you a personality contest. Because, you know, when you tell something, I mean, don't walk up to me after church and say, Pastor Mike, I want to confront you with your reality. You're 20 pounds overweight. I know. Okay. <laughs> Got it. I'm talking about confronting people with what the real situations are within their lives. And, and we need to understand that that's how we win people to Christ because being frank and real with people is not being mean. You should be able to do it in a way that's loving and comforting and helpful. But being frank and real is not mean. It's actually a beckon to Christ. It's a beckon for, to people to, to understand what their sins are and to, to uh, recommit their life to Christ and ask for God's forgiveness because God is love not love is God there's a huge difference in that I hope you worked that out this afternoon God is love love is his being as as PK said last week when he was preaching love's not a feeling love is God's being and and love is not one thing among many things that God does everything God does is loving So listen to this, quick litany. Because he loves us, he creates people to love. God loves, so he creates people to love. He needs a receiver of the great love he has. He creates people. We should be so honored by that. And because he loves, he cares for sinful people. Now, just so you know, that's opposite of what many people outside Christianity believe. They reverse the scriptures that we know and love. You know, in John 3, chapter 17. We love John three sixteen, but John three seventeen says, Son of man comes into the world not to condemn sinners, but to retrieve them. To bring them back. To save them. See, see when, when, you, when, you, when you look at that kind of thing, God cares for us. He, he loves us enough to care for sinful people. And he makes us free to make the choices we want praying for and hoping for, on his part, a loving response. And Christ died for us because of God's love, because God's love caused him to create a solution for the problem of sin. He wants to make a way home for you and for me. And we receive eternal life because God is eternal and wants us to live forever. He creates in us something that's entirely new. Entirely new personality within us. And we are to be love like he is love because his love is not abstract god's love is not abstract it's christ that's his love for us you you see sometimes we need three-dimensional love jesus came to his disciples and they saw him could touch him could feel him 
I'm going to share with you something. This happened actually uh, during this year. One of our students was going through it. You know, I don't know if you guys can imagine this that didn't grow up with social media. Think of your three most embarrassing things that happened when you were in junior high or high school. Now put them out for the whole world to see because that's what social media does. So one of our little people was really going through it this year really struggling, being bullied and whatnot at school. And we'd met a couple times and prayed and talked. And she was greatly encouraged, and she said to her parents, I want to do something for Pastor Mike, but I don't have any money. But I I need him to know that I love what he did for me and that I love God and I love him. So I don't think this will ever be hung in in a, you know, like a museum but she went out and probably for, I don't know, at Cokesbury or at, uh, what do you call it, Hallmark, bought that. And then she colored it for me. It's not nearly as pretty to you as it is to me. You know, it's pretty. But, you know, this is three-dimensional love. Sometimes you just have to give something to show people you love them. And what God was looking at when he looked at us, he says, sometimes I guess I just have to give something. To show them that I love them. So he gave us Jesus. This is not abstract. It's how his love comes to us. It's what he creates in us. Loves what we're, to, what, what we're to be. And it's what we're to communicate. And in spite of hatred that's aimed at Christians, and there is some, Christians never advocate hatred in return. When hatred comes at you, really would I encourage you, because we're in the minority in the culture, I get that. Focus on Jesus. Let that hatred, oh, the words hurt and they, they bruise us a little bit. You know, when people tell us we're dumber in a box of rocks and we believe in, you know, hokum and mythology and all that kind of stuff. But, but let it hone your focus. Let it, let it hone what your, what your life is aiming at. Let it perfect your, your focus. Because all of our life does converge in Jesus Christ. Every issue that we bring to him, everything we have is evaluated in his love. And the home stretch. This world does not have the last word. This world does not have the last word. It is transient. It comes and it goes. You want to get scientific? Yeah, it came. Either in let there be light or bang. Either way, it's let there be light, right? It came, and all science says it's going to go. It's transitory. Everything we touch, everything we feel, it's going to go. But God is permanent. He is not going anywhere. Our personalities are permanent. You all notice how your bodies have gotten older, but your personalities stayed the same age? I'm not talking about your behavior. I'm talking that spirit that's within you, your soul's within you. It's permanent. This, this is all transient. It's going. Our personalities are permanent, even though everything around us is transient. So we have a choice, and the choice is simple. Are we going to pick ruin, or are we going to pick triumph? Ruin, of course, is the way of the world. It's being in it and of it and saying, this is 
all there is to life. All I can see and touch, that's all there is. But triumph says, I'll live in it because that's where my generation has been placed, but I will not be of it. I'll be citizens, a citizen of a higher kingdom. I will reach and I will strive and I will struggle for that every day. Because the original habitat that God made, the original dwelling that God made is for us, humanity, to be with him. That's what the story of the garden is. God made them perfect, put them with him. They rebelled. They got exiled. Jesus was sent as God's three-dimensional piece of love to recreate Eden for us, to bring atonement for you and for me, which is God's way of saying, there's a way home. There's always a way home. And God's testimony is Jesus. And like I said a few moments ago, the first century Christians did not believe they witnessed. Be reminded of this truth, that confession for, Christi- for, uh, for a Christian is an expression of the occupancy of God's habitat. This is where we want to be. T.S. Lewis wrote, Jesus is a still point in a turning world. Jesus is a still point in a turning world. Man, drink that one in. We sing this song from, from time to time in this congregation, not every week, but it's called My Hope is Built. And, and the chorus says, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. And so when Eliot says that, one of my contemporaries said this, Jesus Christ, he's the only thing to hang on to in a shifting world. So God created this for triumph. So I'm really telling you, really simply, walk away from the ruin and walk towards the triumph that God gives you. Now that's thick and that's a lot, But ultimately, it comes down to this or that. May we pray. God of all things, creator of all that has come and will come, you are the true light that illuminates all of us. You call us to yourself. And we ask, O God, that we truly might be those that seek your triumph and not our own ruin with all of our lives. Lord, let us be useful to your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Back to the purple sheets. Always love to be part of a winning team. A year and a half ago, your bishop at the time, Julius Calvin Trimble, challenged us with change of a child's story. You can see a lot written about it. And in the change of child stories program, the, the baseline was that every church in the Iowa was to give 10 books to those who couldn't read or that were learning to read in their neighborhood for every person that attends worship. So in our case, that was 715 people. Multiplied by 10, over 7,000 books we were to give away. I'm proud to announce to you that uh, we have given over 8,000 books now. All the schools, every little school in the Marion and Linmar School District has been given schools, some social service agencies and others that we know are going to be applied to people. Um, Lori Bramley was the real pusher behind it. You can read the article about her. We're going to award her with the uh, conference award she got for driving us. But I just want to tell you, you know, I'm really proud of you, and it's good to play with a winner that has such generous hearts. And by the way, ushers, come on forward.